Welcome to episode four of uh, our series called Myth is America on the Revolution and Ideology channel or podcast. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And uh, we kind of left off with talking about uh, the southern colonies in our last episode uh, here in uh, what would eventually become the United States. We talked Jamestown uh, in one episode, I believe is episode two, and then it gave us some depth on uh, the use of race and how that was manufactured in Jamestown in episode three. And now we're going to look towards New England. Uh, but before we really dig into New England, uh, there's very important context here that we want to build. And of course, that context is going to take us back to Europe a little bit. And in addition to the context, one of the things that we really want to emphasize in this episode uh, that will help kind of guide the way basically for the rest of 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 this uh, of the series is ideological. And Nick's going to give us a good uh, ideological breakdown of something important. It's called the Protestant work ethic. And of course, he is going to use uh, Max Weber uh, to deconstruct that. Of course, Weber is a very famous sociologist uh, towards the end of the 19th and early 20th century. And he's going to, again, break down this ideology using Weber's uh, historical idealist lens. But before we do that, we probably need to talk a little bit, and that's where me, the, the I as the historian, are going to fill in some gaps. How did this work ethic come into being due to certain historical circumstances? And we're going to kick right off with the Reformation. So we're going to be in Europe for a little bit. I am not a Europeanist uh, as a historian. So if I'm missing something and you, and you are a Europeanist, which it seems like everybody that likes history is a Europeanist, but that's a whole different I issue that we will dig into later. Um, just know that, that, that it's okay, that it's not necessarily relevant to what we're trying to talk about here. So again, I'm just going to probably do some highlights here in the first 10, maybe 15 minutes or so to try and just build us towards this work ethic that really is inside the minds and the way that the uh, Puritans think, speak, and act when they show up on the shores of New England. And it's really going to have an effect on the indigenous populations when they come into contact. It's going to have an effect on the societies they seek to construct. It's going to have an effect on uh, certain notions of privilege that they have. So that's why we're doing this episode uh, before we dig into the actual history of the pilgrims. That will be in the following episode. So, okay, let's get started. Uh, the best place to start, of course, is with the most famous reformer, Martin Luther, who lived between 1483 and 1546. He was from a town in what is now Germany, was not at the time, Wittenberg. And uh, the famous myth is that on uh, October 31st of 1517, he nailed 95 theses on the door of the All Saints Church in, in Wittenberg. It is likely a fabricated event, although there's still some people clinging to it. But regardless, it's an ethically constitutive story that, that shows that he was protesting the church. Um, some call him a rogue priest. Um, he was also a theology professor. But he is a key uh, mover and shaker in history, no matter uh, what you think of him. Now, I want to focus heavily on what Luther was hoping to promote with his uh, protest of the church. First and foremost, as most of our listeners are aware, it was prompted by church corruption. And he actually had found a voice uh, due to uh, another important mover and shaker, Erasmus, who had been already uh, using uh, philosophy to challenge certain ways of thinking during the time. But Luther takes it to another level by outright protesting the church. Um to be blunt, and again, without going into all of the details, this is not meant to be a European podcast, but to be blunt, 
one of his main messages in the 95 Thesis, and we do not have t- 95 Theses, we don't have time to go through all of them, but one of the main messages is, of course, you can't buy your way out of purgatory. One of the things that was going on um, was the selling of indulgences and, of course, the purchase of salvation. Again, buying people's way out of purgatory. And Luther thought that was uh, problematic, both based on gospel imperative and the fact that it was leading to corruption within the church, leading to corruption socioeconomically, of course, uh, dividing what are supposed to be somewhat, I don't know that he's like, you know, some sort of like middle-aged like socialist or anything like that, trying to make everybody even, but it did pit uh, people with means against people without means um, in terms of how God showed favor to them. Um, here's the thing. Luther, more or less, uh, in these 95 Theses, uh, echoed some very important ideals that would begin to gain traction in Europe. First and foremost, he had a problem with the selling of indulgences, as we just mentioned. But one of the other things that really becomes prominent, um, not just in his theses, but in some of the other things that he wrote when he uh, eventually was challenged by church leaders, is that it is through faith and faith alone that one achieves their salvation. Rather than having any sort of uh, both material and ideological hegemonic power the Catholic Church had been more or less for centuries, that it was up to the individual and their interpretation of Scripture and the relationship uh, with God that would determine whether or not they were going to be saved. And uh, again, he's writing numerous things here, again, addressed to Christian nobility of the German nation, Babylonian captivity of the church, freedom of the Christian. All of these things are publications that he is writing. Some of them, of course, in response to the church denouncing his new teachings. Uh, he's eventually even summoned uh, back in, what, August 7th of 1517 to appear before the Pope. Um, but And Frederick the Wise uh, rearranged it to be at a neutral meeting at Augsburg. There were further, more or less, collegiate debates taking place between Luther and other church leaders. Like I said, some of those publications are products of these debates. Um... But uh, here we go. By the time we get to 1521, so after about four years of back and forth, both, again, not even both, most of the time it is through publications, through writing. It's There's not a lot of like, you know, there's not like a modern TV debate where one guy's standing behind a podium and another guy's standing behind a podium and they're, they're really hashing this out. It's usually through publications. But he's eventually excommunicated by the church in 1521. Now, before I continue forward, and I did not go through every one of Luther's gripes. I went through basically two. But... I want Nick to kind of fill in. Why are these two so important? The, the the challenging of the selling of indulgences, more or less buying your way into salvation, and then, of course, more or less echoing the idea that it is only through faith that one can achieve salvation. Why is the church going to be, be pissed? Well, when he starts suggesting that only through faith do you get your salvation, uh, that is a step in the direction of removing power from the Pope and the hierarchy of the Catholic Church because... If all you need is faith, then in theory, you don't need anyone else to help you interpret the word of God, to be the power of God, etc. You can develop your own relationship directly with God. And so very clearly, the Pope and its hierarchy is going to have a massive problem with that. Absolutely. And and the best way, one of the things that, that Luther really uh, moves forward regarding uh, theology here. Best way for uh, people to achieve salvation and interpret the word of God rather than relying on the corruption of priests and, and, and other leaders that had been more or less bought their way into positions or were being funded by, again, the wealthy, wealthier, uh, constituents 
was to allow the unwashed masses to read the Bible for themselves. And so uh, his popular appeal really takes off when he uh, helps put together what is known as a vernacular Bible into the common language spoken by the people. At this time, in, in, in again, what is now Germany, most people spoke a, a version of German. It's not modern German, but yes, it was the middle-aged German. And the church was still teaching, of course, in its favorite language, Latin. So there's clearly a disconnect here um, between, of course, the people that control the narrative and the people that were meant to receive the narrative. So one of the ways that Luther challenged that authority is to open up uh, the ability to interpret uh, gospel imperative for the individual by translating it into German. And of course, again, he, he translates Erasmus's version uh, into German, not necessarily the traditional uh, uh, Latin version. And of course, this coincides with Europe, uh, I don't want to use this word inventing, but using the printing press, uh, contrary to popular belief, it's not necessarily the first printing press is not uh, in Europe, it actually starts all the way in Korea, makes its way into China, and then eventually uh, into Europe. Now, what is the actual connection there? I, I'm not a historian that goes through inventions, but I do know that the first version of this was, was in Korea, not, not Europe. So that take that for what it's worth, Google it, have a good time. But the printing press is important because it is, it is, it is a new way to transmit information to the masses, right? It's mass production of, of this work. So it is, it's a game changer. It is the, uh, the 16th century version of the internet, I, I suppose. So it can be used to, of course, uh, awaken people's individual minds, or it can be used to just, uh, uh, yeah, print, uh, print state sanctioned work, which it was used for both. So it's always interesting how that works. Every time we invent something new that could challenge prevailing systems, those systems are usually pretty good at evolving, uh, to then, uh, create their power, uh, or base their power on this new invention. Again, whether it's a printing press, a telegraph, uh, a television or the internet. So anyway, here's the thing. His ideas be did begin to spread. He was wildly popular. Um, and again, it was challenging certain things within the church that were, uh, uh, seen as problematic. He, he there are attacks on celibacy at the time. There is this wide support for now charity from the individual rather than relying on tithing. Like all of these things were popular because it allowed the individual themselves, uh, to decide how they were going to engage, not just in their own lives, but in society at large and how, again, since they are believers, how God would view that. Um, and again, it, it, it's basically liberation. It's, it, it is liberating the individual believer. That was the goal. And these ideas spread. Um, it's based on the freedom from authoritarian rule, um, not only of the church um, and many, but, well, here, let me pause for a second. It's based on the freedom for the authoritarian rule of the Catholic Church, which, of course, there was centuries of back and forth between uh, both lay and ecclesiastical uh, leadership. But this also, many of the princes around there, like so people in lay people in positions of material power actually really liked the Reformation because it makes them now no longer beholden to the church whatsoever. They now kind of get to get to dictate uh, the rules of discourse during this period of time. Thomas Manser uh, is, is, is an individual that wants to get on and he leads, of course, a peasant war where Lutherans end up looking for support to basically break away from the feudal hierarchy. Um, Luther, however, even though Manser is kind of inspired by, by this growing, growing Protestantism, protest against the church, he refused to actually support uh, Munzer, excuse me, um, who saw Luther as more or less working for himself. Um, and again, this insurrection leads to re revolution and there is this debate, should they be revolting against society as uh, in total or should they merely be reforming the institutions there? That's why it's called the Reformation. Luther, at least originally, didn't necessarily see a completely breakaway sect, um, but thought about fixing the one that already existed. 
And uh, listeners are probably like, well, why does all this matter? Well, as this word begins to spread through things like the peasants' wars, and I mean, there's, I mean, over 100,000 people died in these conflicts. So, I mean, it's it's really no joke. But it begins to spread. It ends up uh, spreading into Switzerland. Uh, and a man named Ulrich Zwingli in, in Zurich begins to contest the church there as early as 1519. Um, and then, of course, also related to this, as it, as it spreads through Switzerland, we have the, the man I want to focus on and going to be one of the main emphases of of what Nick's going to be talking about, John Calvin, who begins to work on a a different understanding of the relationship with the individual and God in Geneva. So Calvin, John Calvin is an interesting fellow, and he arrives in Geneva after the city adopted the Reformation itself in 1536. So he's now, since the city itself adopted the Reformation ideals, and more or less, that's basically breaking away from the rule of the church, he's going to have a lot of freedom here to, again, more or less manufacture a new ideological belief system, and, and new might be a... Not completely new, but to take Christianity as it was known and as it was evolving at that time and turn it into something uh, that he saw as progressive uh, for his time period. He himself was from France, and he's a little bit of an intense individual. Uh, basically, John Calvin, when he arrives in Geneva, wanted it to become the symbolic city of morality. That's one of the things that he was really hoping for, and that's why he chose Geneva as his destination, right? It had already adopted the Reformation ideals, and he thought this was going to be – France, of course, had not – and he thought this was going to be the place where he could really showcase uh, the moral virtue of his new uh, branding of Christianity. He uh, was, like I said, so intense he was briefly banished even from Geneva in 1541, but eventually – or excuse me, before and then he's brought back in 1541. Now, without going through all of John Calvin's ideas, and Nick is going to emphasize this a little bit, one of the key components that he uh, uh, brings forth of this new version of faith is the idea of predestination. Now, it's not brand new in world history by any stretch of the imagination, but it is making a, it's coming back after being gone for a while and not necessarily something that would have been believed by any of the earlier Christian sects, at least, at least not to the best of my knowledge. Now, if our listeners know of some sort of obscure sect that, that did fine, so be it. But, you know, earlier Christian churches, uh, Nestorians, the Catholic Church, the Coptic Church, eventually the Eastern Orthodox Church, all of these other earlier institutions didn't necessarily have predestination fully built in the way John Calvin would. Um, and of course, he goes on to write uh, something called the Institutes of the Christian Rights, which creates this very pure understanding of faith, where more or less you're attempting to show off your salvation to your neighbors. I'm not going to steal much of Nick's thunder here because he's really going to go into depth on this. Um, but some would even, one of the critiques of the time against Calvin is that this idea of predestination destination and more or less individual showing off of your morality was actually antithetical to the Bible uh, itself. So this is one of the things uh, that he becomes famous for at the time. Geneva itself, while he's working there, becomes intolerant to the religious state. Um, and it, it, makes time there for John Calvin a little bit tenuous. This is though, like I said, this predestination uh, being taught by John Calvin and all of the, the things that are going to be tied to it that Nick's going to go into great detail on right now are important. Because again, this is not a podcast on, on European history or Reformation history. It's a podcast on, of course, myth is America. It's called Myth is America. We're going to deconstruct uh, our beliefs about the United States. Well, it just so happens that these beliefs uh, are going to be the ones that instill themselves eventually. We're not there yet, but eventually in a group of people called the pilgrims. And again, the way they approached 
uh, uh, their faith and not only their faith, but the faith of all of their other Christian denominations around them would eventually become quite problematic. And, uh, eventually they're going to, uh, alienate themselves in most places they end up. Again, England would be an easy example. Amsterdam would be another. And of course they end up having to, to leave those places and they will seek a new place to create this symbolic, uh, city of morality somewhere else. And eventually we know, uh, I won't say the rest is history because we're going to do an episode on this, but the rest is history. They end up, of course, crossing, crossing the pond and ending up in New England. So without now any further ado, let's let Nick deconstruct the Protestant work ethic heavily founded on uh, the teachings of like Luther and Zwingli and most importantly, John Calvin. So so we're going to be discussing, like Jared said, Max Weber, which is a super famous sociologist. Uh, this publication we're talking about, The Protestant Work Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, gets published in 1905. Uh, and basically, just like Jared alluded to, he's breaking down the his ideological explanation for essentially how capitalism came into being. Um, he's writing this in response to the Marxist conception for how capitalism came into being, which I'm not going to spend any time on. That's beyond the scope of this podcast. Uh, but just know that this is Weber's idealist sort of version for how capitalism came into being. And as Jared uh, told us it has a lot to do with the uh, Protestant sect, the Calvinists. So let's dive right into uh, Weber's theory here. First, we have to understand a couple of terms that are used in sociology because they're used in sociology uh, and they're not common uh, outside of sociology in sort of the common usage of these terms. Uh, the first one we have to understand is economic traditionalism. So I'm going to read, this is a quote actually from the translator of the uh, Protestant work ethic, the copy that I have. He says, uh, economic traditionalism is a frame of mind in respect to work. Work is viewed as a necessary evil and only one arena of life. Nor no more important than the arenas of leisure, family, and friends. Traditional needs are amplified when fulfilled, then work ceases. So this is important, and it's really hard for us to think about because we are so far beyond being able to relate to economic traditionalism at all. But just in a very simple example, think of uh, during an era that was focused on economic traditionalism, the workers would only work as much as they needed in order to survive and to provide for themselves and their families. And that is literally it. So think of if we're like a basic agricultural society, you would work just enough in the field to produce enough to consume yourself and to trade so that you and your family could survive. And that's it. So if we make this as simple as possible and use a simple example, if you need to work four hours a day to support yourself, you will go and work four hours a day. And that's all that you will ever work. And the rest of your time, you would be spending doing things that are more important to you, spending time with your family, leisure, your hobbies, whatever you want to do. But you would only ever work the amount of time that was necessary to work. So for Weber in this book, we're starting from a period of economic traditionalism and we're explaining how we evolve from there. The next phase is economic rationalism. This again is the translator of the book. He says, this term refers to modern capitalism that developed in the 16th and 17th centuries in the West. It implies the utilization of science on behalf of a systematic organization of labor and the entire production process, and hence qualitative increases in productive capacity. 
So economic rationalism is the idea of applying reason and science and rationality and so on to the economic system and to daily work and to the work life. So this is easy for us to relate to because this dictates all of our behavior now in a modern capitalistic society. We try to be as efficient as possible. We mass produce things as much as possible. We work as much as we possibly can and earn as much money as we possibly can. So that's economic rationalism. So Weber's attempting in this work to explain how we transition, how humans transition from economic traditionalism to uh, societies defined by economic rationalism. Economic rationalism is basically modern capitalism. So how did we make that big jump? Like I said, it's kind of difficult for us to relate to economic traditionalism, but we have to understand how much of a massive qualitative jump this is in a way of behaving, a way of thinking, the structures of society, the way we would live our daily lives just on an hour-to-hour basis. This is a huge jump, and so Weber is setting out to uh, solve this. And he uses this term, the spirit of capitalism. And interestingly, he uses quotes from Benjamin Franklin, and he says that the American spirit of capitalism is very unique. So here's some examples of writings. This is this is actually in Weber's book, but he's quoting, this is a block quote of Benjamin Franklin. So here's some things that Benjamin Franklin has to say. He says, remember, the time is money. He that can earn 10 shillings a day by his labor and goes abroad or sits idly one half of that day, though he spends but six pence during his diversion or idleness, ought not to reckon that the only expense he has really spent or rather thrown away five shillings besides. Remember that credit is money. Remember that money is of the prolific generating nature. Money can beget money, and its offspring can beget more, and so on. Five shillings turned is six, turned again it is seven and three pence, and so on, till it become a hundred pounds. The more there is of it, the more it produces every turning, so that the profits rise quicker and quicker. He that kills a breeding sow destroys all her offspring to the thousandth generation. He that murders a crown destroys all that it might have produced, even scores of pounds." Remember this saying, the good paymaster is the lord of another man's purse. The most trifling actions that affect a man's credit are to be regarded. The sound of your hammer at five in the morning or nine at night heard by a creditor makes him easy six months longer. But if he sees you at a billiard table or hears your voice at a tavern when you should be at work, he sends for his money the next day. He demands it before you are able to pay. It shows besides that you are mindful of what you owe. It makes you appear a careful as well as an honest man. And that still increases your credit. For six pounds a year, you may have the use of 100 pounds a year if you are a man of known prudence and honesty. And on and on and on. Here's a long quote from Franklin defining essentially what is the spirit of capitalism. Now, this is Weber. He says, we provisionally employ the phrase spirit of modern capitalism to refer to the particular frame of mind that, as in our example of Benjamin Franklin, strives systematically and rationally in a calling for legitimate profit. So Weber is setting out to explain how we got to this unique American style of capitalism. Now, this is super easy for every listener to relate to because this is exactly what we do in our daily lives. We invest our money, we save our money, we earn our money, we try to use our money to get more money, and on and on and on. Uh, we work hard, we get up early, right? The early bird gets the worm, all of these ridiculous things that we know. And even if we disagree with them, we are forced to live our lives according to them. And we'll get to Weber's explanation for that. Now, it's important for us to note here that this behavior existed prior to the 16th century when Weber is beginning his analysis, and he talks about this extensively. 
but the ethic behind it did not exist. And that is what is key. Very obviously, people sought surplus and accumulated resources prior to the 16th century. You know about the Neolithic Revolution and imperialism and colonial efforts that took place at the time, but they weren't doing it for ethical reasons. They weren't doing it because they viewed it as being the quote-unquote right thing to do. They were doing it for power, usually, and status. It wasn't profit for profit's sake, but that's what it becomes, and that's what Weber is trying to unlock. Or for followers, maybe just utilitarian material purposes, like that I need to do these things to provide for myself and those around me, right? That Yeah, mm-hmm. but there was no specific ideological imperative. And that's where, like, again, the religion that we kind of started off this podcast, he, we're, he, Weber's going to weave that in. So that's important. And, and Nick's using the term ethic here, but that's where that's going to get woven in. And Weber discusses how this behavior, when it starts to sort of rear its ugly head, in the beginning... It was never individualistic. Even when people would behave this way, it was always done for something that was greater than themselves. They were doing it for God, to fulfill God's destiny, their destiny to serve God. Or they were doing it to serve the crown, as in uh, the Columbus example, like we discussed a couple of episodes ago. Clearly, people exploited other people. Clearly, people sought accumulation and surpluses. But before this very unique spirit of capitalism, it was never done out of purely individualistic interest. So that's really uh, what Weber's trying to get at here. So the question becomes, okay, how did we make this transition? Jared's already giving us the uh, intro sort of to John Calvin and the idea of predestination. I'm going to read a quote actually here from Calvin. As Jared mentioned, this is the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which was published in 1536. He says, We say then that scripture clearly proves this much, that God by his eternal immutable counsel determined once and for all those whom it was his pleasure one day to admit to salvation and those whom, on the other hand, it was his pleasure to doom to destruction. Then he continues, but that's enough context for us and Calvin for now. So the idea of predestination, which is key to Weber's analysis, is that it is already determined predetermined, that's where the term comes from, you are predestined to go to heaven or hell before you're even born. So this is very clearly a huge deviation from traditional Catholic beliefs. In the Catholic system, you can sin and repent for those sins and so on, and your behavior on earth dictates whether or not you go to heaven or hell. For the Calvinist, this is no longer the case. It's already determined before you are born whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. And sort of the theological logic here is that if God is omniscient and he knows everything, both past and present, then he already knows what you're going to do throughout your lifetime. So he already is aware of whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. Obviously, this brings in the question of free will, but that's way beyond the scope of this conversation. Um, One of the other aspects, too, one of the explanations is that God's intellect and his power is so far beyond the understanding of any mortal human that we can't possibly try to understand who goes to heaven or hell and that he must predetermine it before any of us are even born with his uh, knowledge of all of eternity. So that's sort of the logic behind it now. Well, and it also, in comparison to Luther, who again paves the way for a lot of these other various Christian or Protestant breakaway sects, 
again, faith and faith alone may not be enough as far as, again, maybe controlling morality and ethical behavior. And so Calvin uh, sees this and sees some of the results. Like I said, that's why I brought up like the, the peasant wars and things along those lines. And it helps perhaps inform uh, his choice to try and, again, reinstill maybe a little bit of a sense of doubt rather than this somewhat and again this is these are this is my my language not calvin's but more or less this get out of hell free card that maybe some people were taking advantage of once they were able to break away from the rule of the catholic church well of course i could do whatever i want because i believe uh you know whatever i believe in god and jesus died for my sins and so on and so forth but then there's no other check on my behavior. So as long as I believe that, I'm free to do what I want. Calvin is trying to reel some of those folks back in a little bit. So Weber argues that this results in a significant amount of existential anxiety for the Calvinists, for the followers of John Calvin that believe in this tenet of predestination. And this seems logical, right? If you you don't know whether you're going to heaven or hell, that very clearly uh, is terrifying. So Weber says, A particular question must arise immediately for every single believer. It forces all such this worldly interest into the background. Am I among the predestined who have been saved? How can I become certain of my status as one of the chosen? So Weber argues that the Calvinists start to ask this question. How can I make sure that I am a member of the elect who is going to heaven? Because I'm terrified otherwise. Now, to deal with this anxiety, Weber says that Calvinists were given two pieces of of advice, and this becomes key to the analysis of how we transition to economic uh, rationalism. Uh, First, they were told it was their duty uh, to believe that they were a member of the elect. Weber says, it became a matter of duty, pure and simple, for the believers to consider themselves among the elect few and to repel every doubt about their state of grace as nothing more than the temptations of the devil. So the logic here goes, it's your duty as a believer to think that you are a member of the elect. And if you ever begin to question that, that is the devil starting to invade your thoughts. And so as a devout believer, you must think that you are a member of the elect. Can we just pause for a second on that for just, I mean, that's such an important revelation here. Like the, again, keeping in mind that the the reason we're doing this is because this is going to be the belief system of the quote unquote pilgrims. They're going to have it instilled in their mind that it is their duty to believe they are elect. That term is important, elect. There is a certain amount of, and this is a very important word in in 2019, privilege, arrogance attached to that. And it is their duty to feel this way, that they are elect. They are superior or better than those around them because they have been or believe they have been granted God's favor. Again, that's wildly important. They didn't have to necessarily specifically earn it, at least not yet. Nick will be getting to that. But it is through this idea that merely even self-doubt even maybe thinking about another belief system or listening to other people in their uh, proselytization, whether they're Lutheran or Catholic or, or or whatever, the Jewish population was also being persecuted at this time. No, not elect. I am the elect. And again, this mentality is going to meet, and we're going to talk about it next episode, like people with very different belief structures, i.e. the First Nations. And, and this idea of being elect is going to wreak massive havoc. So, yeah. Okay, so first they were told that it was their duty to believe that they were the elect. The second thing they were told is they were told to work, simply. Weber says, Work without rest in a vocational calling was recommended as the best possible means to acquire the self-confidence that one belonged among the elect. 
Work and work alone banishes religious doubt and gives certainty of one's status among the saved. Now this plants the seed for working for work's sake. No longer are they working to just sustain their lives and the lives of their families. Now they are working to prevent idleness, which would result in this existential anxiety. Now, I think that probably our listeners in modern-day capitalist society can relate to this a little bit. We have become so conditioned that we are just to work all of the time that if we actually find ourselves having some free time and having time to sit and be with our thoughts, for many people, that results in anxiety for them. They don't know what to do with themselves. They get bored. This is why we have Snapchat and Netflix and anything else that you can imagine that we use to fill our time, because we're hardly even capable anymore of just sitting, sitting idle and being with our thoughts and thinking about the universe and our existence and on and on and on. So the Calvinists are told, you must work. You must work. You must work for work's sake. You must work because any idleness will give you time to question your belief structure. So that's very key. Now, the Calvinists, if you can picture you're experiencing this existential angst, you don't know if you are a member of the elect or not, you essentially are going to try to kind of game the system. You're going to look for signs that are evidence of you being a member of the elect. So this is Weber again. He says, Wherever the doctrine of predestination was adhered to, the question could not be avoided of whether infallible signs existed that allowed recognition of one's membership among the elect. So, one of the signs, Weber argues, that the Calvinists developed over time as demonstrating their membership in the elect was wealth, was financial success. This became the sign uh, over time. And the logic is because surely God would not allow a member of the damned to become wealthy. Clearly, he would only bestow this privilege and this status upon someone that was a member of the elect. Now, think back to what we just talked about and how this relates to their directive to work and to work and to work to take their minds off of their existential angst. So, coincidentally, they're told that they must work endlessly so they don't have enough time to think about this anxiety, and then they start developing the sign of wealth uh, means that they are a member of the elect. So think about how these two things have a reflexive uh, relationship with one another. Also, one of the other tenets of Calvinism is that they should lead an ascetic life. Ascetic, uh, A-S-C-E-T-I-C-I-S-M, asceticism. This means essentially to do without. It's self-denial. Most of the time, uh, you're probably familiar with like monks leading an ascetic lifestyle. It's not exactly the same here for the Calvinists, but you can think of doing without luxurious goods. So they start to develop this ethic, this sort of moral duty to not consume, to not enjoy luxurious things, to live a lifestyle that is uh, very free of material consumption, etc., so the combination of this lack of material consumption, uh, removing the moral restraints from accumulation, and a heightened work ethic led to the incredible acquisition of wealth. These things combined. 
So what do they do with this wealth then if they're not going to use it to uh, whatever, show off their wealth? They're not buying Bentleys and Rolexes, uh, of course, in the uh, 17th century, but whatever that might be, whatever version of that that might be, what are they doing with this wealth? They're just hoarding it? It is like the more they have they have acquired, the more elect they are, and it's sitting somewhere, wherever it might be. Obviously, at this point in time, it's a mix of hard currencies and, and various other mm -hmm. currencies. They're all mixing together in this, what will become the colonial period. But what are they doing with it? It's so they very clearly aren't just letting it sit there. In fact, Benjamin Franklin talks about this, right? You shouldn't let your money sit idle either because money begets money and mm -hmm. so on. So the ethic becomes over time that you will reinvest your money. You'll lend it out to people on interest. You'll start new businesses, You'll etc. All the things that we now associate directly with modern capitalism because that's what it is this ethic this this means of earning money comes to really comes to light and begins to flourish during this time period among the calvinists because they are taught the more wealth you have the more likely you are to be a member of the elect at least that's how they feel so the more wealth that i can accumulate the more comfortable i feel that i'm not have been not not have been damned to destruction. So it, money becomes an ends. It, it is no longer merely a symbolic uh, uh, thing that I exchange whatever. In the Middle Ages, I have five goats and you have five chickens and we want to make an exchange, but we, you know, it's very difficult if I traveled a long way. So I'll, I'll use this symbolic thing, this represent, this amount of currency. These coins represent my goats because I don't want to bring them everywhere. And your coins represent your chickens and we'll have an exchange there. It's no longer attached to that. The, the, the Now the thing of exchange, the symbol of exchange is now no longer just a symbol of exchange. It is the ends you're seeking in and of itself. Yep. That's a crazy switch. You're not even seeking money so you can buy things. You're merely seeking money for money itself. And yeah. that is it. Yeah. 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 Wow. So even relating this back to what we were just talking about, like the middle age accumulation of things, it, it had to do with providing for your family. And even if you were like the crown – it was status, right? You were using these things to prove your status. And it, you never had currency just sitting around. You had rare things, jewels and et cetera, various kinds of spices and all. Like we could have so many examples. But you never just had currency sitting around. Or, that was not a thing. Right. But it starts to happen during this period where the currency is is the end itself. You want that and you want – you don't want it to be idle and just sitting there. But you want it to be out there working for you at all times. And this connection is super important. Again, keep in mind that currency was originally invented symbolically. Now, in the ancient world, yes, they coined things with various kings like Darius of Persia or something on there. Meant to show like the power of empires and things along those lines. But when we get to like the Middle Ages and it makes a big come back there because of the travel economy that develops in uh, the late Middle Ages, right? Because of like pilgrims and university lectures and trade fairs and all the cool things that like develop and create a, a basically a trade economy uh, based on a lot of travel. Needless to say, carrying a bag of representative of all of your wealth is way easier than bringing all your wealth everywhere you go to make exchanges. So it's obviously, it was utilitarian. It made sense, right? People like the Medici in, in Florence use this to even, of course, uh, uh, fund great works of art, as you all know. So it was actually useful for that. But it was always merely a symbol. It was not the currency in and of itself. It was symbolic. You would have to have faith in that symbol. So if you uh, are traveling to whatever, let's pretend you're traveling to Frankfurt for whatever reason. Maybe there was a trade there, trade fair there. When you go, when you go there and you have this little bag of coins, the only reason an exchange takes place is because whoever you're exchanging with, somebody selling whatever horseshoes, uh, in Frankfurt is because that person has faith. You guys share the same faith that that currency can be turned into something else. 
right? But it was not the currency that was important. It was the faith in the currency that could be turned into something else. And of course, our, our listeners can probably already see where we're going with this. The faith in, of course, religion in this case, faith in God. And now we're transferring faith slowly but surely away from God, but faith in a symbol. And that's going to play a very important role in what Nick's trying to, trying to talk about here, uh, analyzing Weber. So this is the beginnings of ethical capitalist behavior. Now, what I mean by that is think back to what we just talked about a few minutes ago about how people, there was a time that if people believed in this spirit of capitalism and they behaved in this way where they were out for themselves and they wanted accumulation merely for accumulation's sake and they were out for individualistic ends, this was viewed as morally reprehensible. This was completely unacceptable and went against your religious faith. It went against the teachings that you were supposed to be passionate about the community and help those that were less fortunate and so on and so on. Now, this is a massive turning point where now the spirit of capitalism becomes the ethically correct thing to do. It is the right thing to do. And doing the opposite and not doing that becomes the morally reprehensible behavior. And this is a massive turning point. You have something on that? No. Well, I mean, it's not necessarily it's necessarily even unique to Europe, right? Like, if we look at like like whatever Han, Qin, Tang Dynasty, China, like it is the 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 business people, the merchants, and so on and so forth, that are usually they're, they're materially they're actually kind of wealthy, but the rest of society doesn't like hanging out with them because of what they do for a living. They are they are profiting uh, off of, of course, uh, the the more traditional communal ethic. There, they are individually profiting on them. Yeah. So it's it's even though they they might have some stuff and some wealth and maybe status in that regard, they have. Almost Almost no social status because no one wants to be around these these individuals. So it's not even unique to Europe. Like other, <coughs> excuse me, other societies, concurrent societies at the time felt this way about like again like making money for the sake of making money. I mean, it's that simple. Yeah. I mean, even think of the term profiteering, right? That has a negative connotation. Weber talks extensively. I don't have a quote here on it, but he calls it adventure capitalism. It was capitalism that existed, but prior to it becoming the morally justified thing to do, it always existed on the fringes of society. So like Jared just explained, the capitalists might have existed, but they were profiteering and exploiting and taking advantage of people, which was hugely frowned upon. So they always existed. They never had a social status. They might have material status, but they were not valued uh, in society as contributors. But this is the change in that. This is when the when capitalism becomes viewed as the right and the normal. Um, yeah, here's a quote by Weber. He says, if we now combine the strictures against consumption with this unchaining of the striving for wealth, a certain external result that is, one with an impact outside the realm of religion, now becomes visible. The formation of capital through asceticism's compulsive saving. The restrictions that oppose the consumption of wealth indeed had their productive use for profit and gain became used as investment capital. He then talks about how this entire belief structure and the behaviors behind it begin to serve to justify class structure. He says, Religious asceticism gave to the employer the soothing assurance that the unequal distribution of the world's material goods resulted from the special design of God's providence in making such distinctions as well as in deciding who should be among the chosen few. God pursued mysterious aims unknown to terrestrial mortals. So just think about how this ideological system serves to justify class inequality. According to this logic, the people that are poor 
are poor intentionally because they are not members of the elect, because God has not chosen them to be blessed and to go to heaven. He has not welcomed them into their kingdom. So just think about how the Calvinists would have thought about the poor at the time. Then think about how this has transitioned and transferred into our own modern society. We carry these very same beliefs. Even though hardly any of us are Calvinists anymore, which maybe we'll talk about in a second, we still, you think about when you see the homeless person on the street, you assume that somehow they are immoral, that somehow they are not good people, which is completely asinine. they just didn't work hard enough and so on. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. We morally judge people who do not take part in our economic system uh, the ways that we think that they should be participating in the economic system. We place moral judgment on those people. It is completely absurd and absolutely asinine when you think of it on that level. Faber argues that this is when the moral ethic behind capitalism came about, and it has to do with the Calvinists and this tenet of predestination. Now, the main question that we're sort of going to wrap this up uh, with, we have a little bit more, is hardly any of us, like I said, are Calvinists, but very undeniably, all of us are capitalists. Even if you're like the most devout socialists out there, you still must participate in the capitalist system uh, just to survive. So every single one of us is a capitalist. So this is Weber's quote on that. And this is a super famous passage uh, from the work. So I'm going to read it. It's kind of long, but there's some important terms in here. Uh, he says, quote, the Puritan wanted to be a person with a vocational calling. We must be. For to the extent that asceticism moved out of the monastic cell and was carried over into the life of work in a vocational calling and then commenced to rule over this worldly morality, it helped do its part to build the mighty cosmos of the modern economic order, namely an economy bound to the technical and economic conditions of mechanized machine-based production. This cosmos today determines the style of life of all individuals born into this grinding mechanism, and not only those directly engaged in economically productive activity. It does so with overwhelming force and perhaps will continue to do so until the last ton of fossil fuel has burnt to ashes. The concern for material goods, according to Baxter, should like on the shoulders of his saints like a lightweight coat that one can throw off at any time. Yet fate allowed this coat to become an iron cage. To the extent that asceticism undertook to transform and influence the world, the world's material goods acquired an increasing and, in the end, inescapable power over the people, as never before in history. So Weber says here, this began as an ideology, a religious belief structure, that then resulted in a very specific way of behaving and then that way of behaving became po so pervasive throughout society and spread so quickly that the religious aspect of it faded away. It withered away and was completely stripped from this way of behaving. And the way of behaving then became the foundation of our society. And now we are all trapped in this iron cage and we are unable to escape even if we don't want to, even if we don't believe in predestination and so on, we have no choice but to participate in Cal or, sorry, capitalism. Now, I have Iron Cage here highlighted in my notes because it's interesting. The translator of the copy that I use, uh, which I think is probably the most uh, widely used, he says that the more accurate translation is actually steel hard casing. 
but uh, sociologist Talcott Parsons was the first that ever translated this work uh, from German into English, and he used the term iron cage when he did his translation, since it was the first that became by far the most widely used uh, for a really long time. And so now this term itself is super famous, uh, Weber's concept of the iron cage, and it's used extensively in philosophy and sociology, etc. So I always just stick to the iron cage. Uh, so basically we're stuck in the iron cage of capitalism as a result of uh, Calvinism and the, the tenet of predestination. So what do you have to say about that? I mean, it's, it's, I mean, this ideology is definitely going to, like I said, inform not only like the next immediate episode where we talk about the actual uh, pilgrims who, who, who came uh, at the beginning of the 17th century and their interaction, of course, with uh, the Wampanoag and other First Nations. It's definitely going to inform those interactions. Um, it's also going to inform very quickly uh, a different set of Puritans that show up after them called the Massachusetts uh, Bay Company, and they're going to, again, take it to a, a whole different level. Now, all of those early actors are definitely working under the religious auspices uh, that are attached. But as Weber goes on for, for further here, as, and he's writing from the early 20th century, that religious piece withered away. And what I always find intriguing is that, again, religious constituents, regardless of, of, of faith, if, if they live here in the United States, whether they are still uh, Protestant or Catholic or Muslim or Jewish or whatever, um, they – those scriptures, the scriptures that they're supposed to be looking at, whether it is the Torah or the Quran or the New Testament, whatever it is, often have some very clear, uh, very clear cut, uh, uh, imperatives, uh, regarding materialism and hoarding and, and charity, those types of things. So it's always interesting me, to me how, like, even though the religious piece is worn away and modern religion, or you can still look at texts that, that would maybe argue against these morals and ethics, the type of mental gymnastics and cognitive dissonance that, that many of us are able to go through to still basically try and synthesize these two things, like the religious imperative tied to, again, materialism. What's an easy example? Shoot, Jesus and the money changers. There aren't really, in my opinion, this is my opinion, I'm not a theologian, there's not a whole lot of different ways to interpret what he meant when he goes in there and wrecks shop. And yet... And yet we still, people that are like, again, very religious practitioners are willing to still adopt this idea of hoarding and investment and moral judgments against those that don't practice the same way and getting up early and working hard. And we could see that, right? Most of the studies out there um, show that the Americans, and this is, I'll give them, a, I'll give us all a little bit of credit here, are some of the hardest working people on the planet. We work on average more hours than just about anybody else in the world. We usually kind of go back and forth with uh, South Korea and Japan on this. Um, but, and, and that's actually not coincidental. Keep in mind, those are two economies modeled on ours in a post World War II, uh, Marshall plan. So again, that's actually not even coincidental, right? Like those are economies that we, we helped rebuild after World War II. Uh, so yeah, I mean, like, what are we working so hard for? We have more than enough surplus just here, not, not to mention the globe. We could feed seven and a half billion people if we had to, but, but let's just focus here. It's myth is America. We have more than enough surplus here for everybody to be more or less well taken care of. Why not? Why is that not a thing? How is that not a thing? And it's, I'm not even talking like full blown, like some sort of, you know, listeners, like weird communist utopia. That's not what I'm saying. Like there, there can be status and there can be people with unique skills and so on and so forth. But like, why do we have people that have like nothing? Like, it, 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 no, you know, no healthcare, no food, 
no place to live. We have houses just vacant everywhere and yet homeless populations. How is that a thing? How does this ideology, again, rationalize that type of society? That's, that's why this, this work ethic is so important to me. Is, and, and it's not just the immediate aftermath that I'm going to do in the next episode with Puritans and so on and so forth. It's, it's the modern day ramifications. How do we, again, how can one person walk down, uh, downtown wherever you live, uh, and look at a homeless person there and then go back out to the suburbs and see six houses for sale on your street? How, where, where is the break? Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, and then we morally justify it. Or ethically justify it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the homeless person didn't do the right thing. They didn't follow the norms of society and work really hard or whatever we have to like. I love your term mental gymnastics. We convince ourselves somehow I have everything that I have because I deserve it because I did I am the right elect. thing. Exactly. We're no longer the elect in the Calvinist sense of the term. Now we are the chosen. I did this and I deserve it because I worked so hard, etc. We're stuck in the iron cage. Weber would argue that till the end. Well, and now we even like to now, which is weird, we even this other part with the way we we do sometimes like to show off how elect we are or make ourselves feel elect with the fancy car, the fancy clothes, or the fancy watches or whatever, you know, a selfie-based culture, like I am elect, I am special, I am all of these things. And here's 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 the surprise, listeners, and you all, or if you're already listening to this, no, we're none of those things. No, None of these individuals are special. No one's a special little snowflake or anything along those lines, right? Like, regardless of what our parents say, we're doing these things, we're buying these things, we're taking these selfies, we're not even sometimes selfies, I'm showing my breakfast every morning on Facebook to see, to show everybody how good a cook I am so I can feel special, I can feel elect. The reason we have to do those things is because you don't feel that way. None of us feel that way. These are just like any drug we are trying to compensate. We're trying to overcompensate for the fact that we actually don't feel that way. Um, and that's kind of the sad part is we've even lost that little bit from the original version, OG version of the Protestant work ethic is now we're just trying to compensate any way we can that I am elect in my own way. My society likes me. My friends like me. My, I need likes. I need, uh, whatever upvotes, whatever it is. I need these things to feel more quote unquote elect. So yeah, that's all I have. I actually have a theory on that of like, I think there is very specific transitions from this sort of like the traditional Calvinists would never show off their wealth. And right. In fact, Weber, Weber has a past, a personal connection to this because his father was a successful civil servant. He was like a politician that was fairly well off. His family was fairly well off. His mother was a devout Calvinist. So in the Weber household, this debate would happen all of the time where the father would, his father would be consuming, obviously, and buying luxurious things. And his mother constantly would be telling them, telling him, you know, take that back. Don't spend this money. We need to be saving and investing and we shouldn't, we shouldn't be flashing our success, et cetera. I, one of my theories is that we actually made that transition when the economy reached a point where it wasn't possible for everyone to actually be successful. So we transitioned to start flashing and demonstrating our success in other ways. And we largely used debt to do so. Well, and, and yeah, we have an ep- whole episode coming up on that. And when that becomes a very important part of, uh, uh, the Americana project with again, uh, Ohio Valley company of speculators and those types of people that are willing to try and sell the idea of status for those that can't afford status yet, that don't have this wealth, they will finance your status and you will then be beholden to them for 
work. So again, that we'll be getting to uh, in a future episode, not the next one, but maybe the one after that. It'll be coming up here pretty soon. So it's not like, you know, I finance my fancy car because I think that's going to get me into heaven. Like that's been long removed. But we buy nice things and we display signs of our status and our wealth because that makes us feel good and makes other people think that we are good and that we do the right thing in society, that we work really hard and we follow the norms. And like my expensive watch makes people think that I am a good person. So, yeah, no, I'm, and, and I'm, shoot, I'll even quote the story of stuff here at this point. What is that video on YouTube? It's a great video if you haven't seen it. Just type in the story of stuff. It's what, 10, 15 years old at this point, and it's more of an environmental thing. But, 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 and I forget her name, but the woman that's like the narrator, she does a very good job when they get to the point of why do we like consume so much now? And, uh, she uses like, I don't know, different shoe styles specifically for women. And basically there's a status attached to it that it's not that the styles are so cool that they change every year and you need to be up to date just for the sake of being uh, attractive it's actually also showing that you are contributing to the capitalist system that if you do not have the newest shoe since the child style has changed you are then frowned upon because you're not contributing to of course the ethic in this case the ethic behind the capitalism it's not the style specifically if you have last year's shoes on and you surround yourself with friends only with this year's shoe it's not just oh i'm out of style it's your friends are then judging you you are not contributing anymore to these cycles. So, I mean, and again, I'm paraphrasing. Again, please check it out. Type in story of stuff on, on, on YouTube. You can find it. it's a super popular video. It's 15, 10, 15 years old. But yeah, like that, that's what you just made me think of. This and you saying that just made me think of now another sort of transformation that's happened over the past like decade or so, the whole minimalist movement and how much privilege is associated oh, with God. that. Yeah. Now it's not like, Oh, I have this like stark lifestyle and I have one chair in my apartment because I'm poor. Now it's because, well, I can afford whatever I want, but ideologically I choose to be a minimalist. And like now that is a sign of status. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even want to get it started on like that tiny house movement. I mean, at one point I was like, man, I'm super into this. And then I started seeing the videos being made on it. And like these people are like, this isn't. I don't know. People that are making them for like homeless populations in Los Angeles and stuff. I know that's actually really an awesome movement and they're making these great little houses for like 12, 1500 bucks. But the ones I'm talking about are the people that are building like $150,000 like tiny houses. Like, come on, what are you doing? Like, like that, that, yes. Anyway, whatever. We're getting off, we're getting way off, off the rails here at this point. We got to bring it. We got to reel it back. Uh, in. Do you want to reel this back in and just end with sort of explaining that, which Jared already alluded to in the very beginning. The Calvinists were awful to be around. They were terrible human beings because they were constantly judging everyone. And constantly, like it says, like Weber argues, it was their duty to believe that they were a member of the elect. So just picture someone walking around and it's part of their belief system that they have to think that they're better than everyone else. Just think about that for a second and let that sink in. Now, clearly, no, not everyone is like that to this day. Even modern Calvinists, I'm, I hope, aren't like that either. But at the time, they very much were like this. So like Jared said, everywhere they existed, they ended up alienating themselves from the surrounding populations. This is why they found themselves crossing the pond and eventually landing in the what came the northern colonies of the United States. So the myth of they were seeking... Oh, they were so persecuted. Yeah, they were seeking freedom from religious persecution. That's like, at best... They were persecuted, but they 
in a way, brought that upon themselves by not just whatever, staying in their lane and living in society peacefully and always, again, pointing out everybody else's faults and flaws and so on and so forth and needing to be in positions of power. They actually would actually attain power in England, ironically enough, after the first colonies uh, were, were, were already founded, which actually cuts off some of the Calvinist uh, uh, migration. But again, we'll get to that in a future episode. Yeah. So like this whole narrative of they were seeking religious persecution is like at best a half truth. Like, yes, they were being persecuted against because they were awful people and no one wanted to be around them. Not just because of like the tenets of their faith were disagreeable. It's because who they were and how they behaved was awful and no one wanted to be around them. So think about how that's that's a unique kind of religious persecution. It's not so much about the tenets of the faith. It's the way that they believed and behaved as a result of their religion that nobody else could stand. And that's why they found themselves exiled and exiting their current society. I mean, even ag- exiled at one point, or at least asked to leave from Amsterdam, which was arguably one of the most accepting cities, well, shoot, to this day, right? Like, during the Spanish Inquisition, a lot of Jews found refuge there. Like, I mean, it, it has this rich history of accommodation, and even there, they had found found themselves not too popular. So we'll cut it off there because that's exactly where Jared's going to pick up is when they make their way across and start establishing the colonies in uh, New England. So we'll stop there. Uh, That concludes this episode of the Myth is America series of the Revolution and Ideology podcast. You can reach us online, uh, revolutionandideology.com. We're on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. Uh, Find us on iTunes. uh, Give us a rating. Yeah, that's it. So I'm Nick Lee. I'm Jared. Talk to you guys next time.